Aloha kakahiaka, as we say in the Hawaiian Islands. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 28th of February, 2023 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18th, 1640, and since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms and you're a part of our history. So I congratulate you. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show, especially a special show like this that is coming to you today from my home in Honolulu, Hawaii. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. We've got a great show for you. So without any further delay, let's get started. Coming up on today's show. Aloha from my home in Honolulu, Hawaii, everybody. Today is the final day of February 2023. What's this I hear about the early emergence of the crocuses on Potts Hill? Well, that's just... (laughs) That's just unbelievable. On today's show, I will be reintroducing you to the 19th century Greenwich and Stamford Congregationalists who embraced a life of missionary service in the Hawaiian Islands. Now, pictured on the uh, the blog site is Charlotte Close-Knapp Dole, originally from Round Hill, Greenwich, and with her husband uh, pictured there is the Reverend Daniel Dole, who was the principal of Ponoho School, very, very famous school here in uh, in Honolulu. On next week's show, I will be featuring an on-site interview with Mike Smala. He is the Curator of Public Programs at the Hawaiian Mission Houses Historic Site and Archives in Honolulu. You're definitely going to want to stay tuned for that. Now, on Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey will take us to Otter Cottage in Belhaven Park. Featured in Victorian summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard, Otter Cottage was built for Henry H. Adams in 1892 and designed by architect Henry Warren Howard. On Greenwich from Home, courtesy of the Greenwich Historical Society, you'll learn about presidential items in our collection, that would be the Greenwich Historical Society's collections, and this is by Anna Greco. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, Lucian Edwards wrote about, quote, the old Round Hill store and how Mr. Converse saved Greenwich from a water famine in the March 2nd, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. On crimes and misdemeanors, a violation of a new ordinance in Greenwich requiring quote-unquote garbage wagons to be properly covered caused Antonio Cucuruto to be arrested a century ago this week. Now, it's Black or African American History Month here in Greenwich and elsewhere around the country. On today's show, you'll learn about one of Greenwich's earliest African American families, the Felmetes. Elsewhere in Greenwich, it was announced a century ago this week that the armory would be the setting 
for the town's first automobile show. The ice in Greenwich Harbor extended all the way out to Great Captain's Island that year, requiring the Peter Mitchell Contracting Company to use dynamite to break up the ice so that two coal barges for the Marr Brothers Corporation could be docked. On February 23, 1923, the people of Greenwich opened their copies of the Greenwich News and Graphic to learn about one of the greatest archaeological discoveries ever, the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamen of Egypt. The riches were said to be worth $15 million, and that would be in 1923 dollars. Imagine what that would be today. A letter to the editor in the, Greenwich, in, in the February 26, 1881 edition of the Greenwich Observer described a quote-unquote a, a village sketch, and that sketch was about a village called Round Hill. I'll have more about that. The people of Greenwich have been avid travelers for more than a century. In February 1908, Willie Darton, quote, with an elegant coat of tan on face and hands and an additional 20 pounds over and above what he had when he went away, returned from a three-month trip to the southern states, and he was asked many questions about his travels. I'll have news about that. My friends, there's lots to see to do to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of this extraordinary town, the place that we call home. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission 
with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632. Write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Well, Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard is truly an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history. It features beautiful photos and ephemera. The book is the culmination of decades of work and research by Matt Bernard, taking its readers to America's Gilded Age as found in Belhaven. On today's show, we're going to visit Otter Cottage. It is located at 15 Otter Rock Drive in Belhaven. Um, its principal owner was Henry H. Adams. It was built uh, circa 1892. The architect was Henry Warren Howard. Approximately two years after his lamb and rich design house went up at 87 Mayo Avenue, and shortly after his son's own Lafayette Cottage on Bush Avenue was completed, Henry H. Adams commissioned yet another house to add to the family compound. Otter Cottage, just around the corner behind his own house and next door to his son's, was presumably built as an investment rental, but could have also been used by another family member. Henry Waring Howard, a local builder architect, is credited with the design. Otter Cottage, at the head of Otter Rock Drive, bears some resemblance to Adam's Cottage. Both houses are done in the shingle style, and both feature an unusually spacious wraparound veranda with a pedimented gable over the front steps. Both roofs exhibit complicated massings, but in different ways. Otter Cottage's exuberant asymmetry, gables, gambrels, and dormers, somehow organized into a coherent whole, is almost more Queen Anne than shingle style. When the house was renovated in 1992, the brown-stained shingles were removed, and it moved further toward the Queen Anne aesthetic. The third-story gambrel was removed and replaced with a pitched steeper slope, an inset with a Palladian window, the whole of which now projects over a second-story bay window. A library has been tastefully inserted into what was a portion of the first-floor piazza, but otherwise the house looks pretty much as it did at the turn of the 20th century. The interior floor plan resembles that of H.H. H. Adams, Jr.'s house right next door on Bush Avenue, with its four main first-floor rooms and central chimney. There was also a second chimney for a kitchen, stove, fireplace, venting. 
but this plan shows various clever little nooks, including a small lobby leading into the large, broadly bay-windowed reception hall, a landing with a window seat, and exceptional stained glass windows, a servant's hall off the kitchen, a pantry, and a butler's closet. H. Waring Howard fitted out the interior with wainscoting and rich moldings. These remain beautifully restored, although the front door has been relocated to the center of the living hall and the vestibule has been converted into a coat closet. By present-day standards, houses of the Victorian era sorely lacked a sufficient number of full bathrooms. Only one is shown on the floor plan published in Scientific American, and by the way, that is uh, reproduced in the um, in the book. Presumably, there was another on the third uh, on the third floor. One will note that the trend of the day was to add separate washing sinks adjacent to the bedroom closets that supplemented the lack of multiple bathrooms. Today, the house has been reconfigured and expanded with the floor plan adapted to suit a modern lifestyle. It boasts six full bathrooms and seven bedrooms. And that, my friend, was uh, my friend's is Otter Cottage, uh, built in 1892. Now, Victorian summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard, is available for borrowing through the Greenwich Library System. Why not consider purchasing a copy as a gift? I think you should. It would make a wonderful gift. Um, I've given these away, and uh, and maybe you will too. Now, you may purchase a copy of uh, this book at the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store, where members of the Greenwich Historical Society enjoy a discount. How about that? Visit GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Hawaii is like no place else anywhere on Earth. Surrounded by the glimmering waters of the Pacific Ocean, the islands feature lush emerald valleys, golden sandy beaches, and a spiritual beauty mirroring the warmth of its aloha-filled people. The first half of the 19th century was a period of profound transformation around the world, as evidenced by the overthrow of Hawaii's kapu system and the near-simultaneous arrival of Protestant Christian missionaries in 1820. It turns out that young Protestant Christian missionaries from Greenwich, Stamford, and Danbury dedicated their talents, energies, and lives to service in Hawaii most of whom never returning to their ancestral homes here in New England. Among those who answered the call to serve God in distant peoples was Dr. James William Smith of Stamford. His calling brought him to Hawaii in 1842. James William Smith was born in Stamford on July 8, 1810. Of his early life, Smith wrote, quote, Until I was 17 years old, I usually attended school in the winter and worked on the farm in the summer. At this time, at this age, I began school teaching. When I was about 19, it pleased the great head of the church to arrest me in my sins, and as I humbly trust to bring me to the knowledge of the truth, as it is in Jesus. Soon after, I connected myself with the Congregational Church in Stanwich, where I came under the pastoral care of Reverend Platt Buffett. After a year, I think was after this, I commenced studying in preparation for the ministry. I entered the Academy of O.H. Olmsted of Wilton, where I studied 
in all about three years. Occasionally, I was obliged to engage in teaching for a few months in order to supply myself with the necessary funds. In the spring of 1834, my health failed me, and to my great grief, I was compelled to relinquish my studies, unquote. Now, Smith studied medicine in Stanford and at the New York College of Physicians and Surgeons, now Columbia University. Quote, I commenced the study of medicine as my health would permit it, thinking that in this profession next to after the ministry, I would have the greatest field of usefulness, unquote. Now, Dr. Smith decided to go on a mission for several reasons. He says, quote, I would say, first, the Savior's command, go teach all nations. Second, the wants of the heathen, <clears throat> the physician, if I understand the case, is greatly needed at the Sandwich Islands, which is what Hawaii was known, at the present time, and no one seems ready to go. Third, the fact that I commenced preparation for the ministry under the circumstances I did was aided by benevolent friends and was the subject of many prayers and ardent expectations. This fact gives additional weight to other considerations, and I feel as if the Lord had a claim on me. Now, he married Melicent Knapp, the, nor the daughter of Jared Knapp and Mary Owen of Round Hill in Greenwich. She was born on the 15th of October in 1816, and they were married by the Reverend Chauncey Wilcox of the North Greenwich Congregational Church at the Knapp Homestead on the 18th of April in 1842. Now, within weeks after their wedding, they were on the brig Sarah Abigail out of Boston for a 143-day journey to Hawaii. They were members of the 10th Company of Missionaries and arrived in Honolulu on September 12, 1842. Now, from 1842 to 1882, Dr. Smith was the only physician on the island of Kauai. He was prone to hasty and regular calls on horseback and on foot. Sometimes his visits took him to Hanalei, which is on the north shore of the island of Kauai, or to Waimea, 12 miles in the other direction. In February 1866, he made a 40-mile ride to attend to a young boy at Princeville Plantation in four and a half hours. And by the way, Dr. Smith was 55 years old at the time. Can you believe it? Now, in a letter he penned to Obadiah Mead of North Greenwich, dated in, on October 20, 1843, Dr. Smith said, and I quote, We find our field of labor in many respects very pleasant. I might speak of the mild and affectionate disposition of the natives and of their readiness to receive instruction, traits which soon endear them to the heart of the missionary, unquote. Horton Owen Knapp was born in Round Hill on March 21st, 1813. A contemporary account described him as descended from a pious ancestry, although his parents did not embrace religion until the time, quote, of those extensive revivals of religion which prevailed throughout the United States in 1831. In 1836, Knapp abandoned his goal of studying for the ministry, deciding to go to the Hawaiian Islands as a teacher in response to a call published by the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Now, Horton married Charlotte Close, also of Round Hill, boarded the bark Mary Fraser in Boston and as members of the 8th Company Reinforcement set sail for the Hawaiian Islands. The ship became a floating community for the missionaries for, with morning and evening prayers in the passengers' cabins. By the end of the voyage, about half the crew was converted, including Captain Charles Sumner. Charlotte Knapp noted in her journal that the captain, quote, used to think the subject of religion of little importance, but he had been led by our examples in teaching to examine the subject, and there was a change in his views and feelings, unquote, of 
vote among the missionaries during the voyage to put Knapp in charge of the singing school was made, quote, I immediately objected to being their chorister. He wrote home to Deacon Silas Hervey Mead of North Greenwich. My objections, however, were unsuccessful, unquote. Horton and Charlotte were assigned to the mission station at Waimea on Hawaii Island, where Horton worked as an associate to Reverend Lorenzo Lyons. Lyons was often absent on preaching tours, as they were called. Knapp took on the labors of the station, conducting the school in the Hawaiian language, and ran religious meetings for the native population. The meeting house, by the way, was a grass shelter. Now, Knapp was one of the 13 founding members of the Hawaiian Association of Teachers in 1837. This organization was dedicated to discussions of science and the advancement of education and Christianity in the Hawaiian Islands. In January 1839, plagued by respiratory problems, he and Charlotte moved to Honolulu for better medical care. He also assisted in the schools there in Honolulu. On November 26, 1844, Charlotte wrote in her journal, quote, Today is the anniversary of our marriage, and it is more than probable the last we shall ever see. Eight years has passed rapidly and happily away, but the future seems dark and uncertain. But I would trust in him who can bring light out of darkness, that he will cause light to shine on my path and give me the consolation I need in every hour of trial. Horton Owen Knapp died in Honolulu on March 23, 1845, and was buried in the missionary cemetery behind Kauai Hau Church. He was only 32 years old. In his obituary, it said as this, His heart seemed to overflow with affection for those who stood around his bed, wrote Reverend Richard Armstrong, and in fact for all the members of the mission generally to, who, to all whom he sent messages of love, not forgetting even the children. He mentioned the name of his far distant and aged mother, together with his brothers and sisters, expressing a strong desire that the native church members might grow in grace and walk worthy of their high calling and that his beloved pupils might be brought to Christ. That is the story of Horton Owen Knapp, missionary to the Hawaiian Islands from Greenwich, Connecticut. Punahou School in Hawaii was founded by Congregational Missionaries in 1841. One of the school's first teachers was Charlotte Close Nabdol. She came from Greenwich. She was the daughter of Gilbert and Sally Close of Round Hill. She married Horton Owen Knapp and both sailed together in December 1836 for Hawaii. The year after Horton died in 1846, Charlotte married the Reverend Daniel Dole. In a letter dated November 25, 1846, to her cousin, Sally Mead of Greenwich, Charlotte described the setting. Quote, we are about two miles from Honolulu, have a fine view of the sea. All the vessels which go into Honolulu stale by us. We are about a mile or more from the sea. It is sufficiently contiguous to Honolulu to enjoy the benefits of society and some religious privileges. The building, she continues, encloses two squares or courts, or rather three sides of them, the side toward the sea being open. She wrote some more and said, The education of the missionaries' children is an important object, and I cannot but feel that my husband needs more wisdom in directing their minds. They will, doubtless, exert a great influence, unquote. Now, studies, she said, pursued, are the common English branches, algebra, philosophy, Greek and Latin. Other su subjects taught at Ponaho at the time included drawing, writing, singing, and languages. Quote, at 11, I go in and attend to some classes in geography and arithmetic. At the time of Charlotte's letter, by the way, all of the school's boarders were boys. Quote, they make their own beds, sweep the rooms, but need looking after to see that it is properly done. On Saturday, they wash their rooms and pick up leaves or whatever may have been scattered about. 
Charlotte Close-Knapp was deeply committed to her missionary work as an educator. She spent the remainder of her life in Hawaii, where she died in 1874. Charlotte is interred in the missionary cemetery behind Kauaihau Church in Honolulu. kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. You are listening to the Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, there is a section of the Greenwich Historical Society's website that I would like to call to your attention. It's called History from Home. You'll find it in the library and archives section uh, on on the um, main menu of the Greenwich Historical Society website, which you can access at GreenwichHistory.org. Now, the Greenwich Historical Society's curators, editors, educators, rather, the Greenwich Historical Society's curators, educators, and docents have come together to bring the best of Greenwich history, our stories, our landmarks, archives, and collections online for all to peruse and enjoy. And so these are some um, items that have been written by members of the staff of the Greenwich Historical Society. Uh, it's a really wonderful section of the uh, the website, and I call your attention to it. One of the items that I'm going to um, 
uh, to read to you today is a piece by Anna Greco, and uh, this is on presidential objects in our collection. Of course, as you know, we just recently um, paused to celebrate President's Day, uh, and um, and so it's rather timely that uh, uh, that we conclude the month with uh, with this. So it reads as follows. Presidents upon leaving office have long been encouraged to establish presidential libraries where the American public has access to documents, objects, and other historical materials that reflect their service. To date, 13 presidential libraries are overseen by the National Archives, the first library having been established in 1939 for President Franklin Roosevelt. But the United States of America has had more than 13 presidents. Well, that's certainly true. What has become of the collections and ephemera of our 32 other presidents? It's an excellent question. As American citizens and history lovers, we want more. Where can we find objects of interest to presidential historians, amateur and professional, to better know the fascinating and little-known details of their lives? The personal items belonging to past presidents find their way into several different kinds of collections. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Martin Van Buren have had their homes turned into museums at Monticello, Montpelier, and Lindenwald. And you can find George Washington's dentures on display at the National Museum of Dentistry in Baltimore. <laughs> the, the Greenwich Historical Society has a special presidential items featured in its archives, including many items from the life of George Herbert Walker Bush, who grew up in town. Today, however, we will take a closer look at a unique item in the Greenwich Historical Society's collections that belonged to President Grover Cleveland, who often visited friends in Greenwich during his lifetime. President Cleveland was the 22nd and 24th President of the United States, serving from 1885 to 1889 and again from 1893 until 1897. One of his closest friends was Commodore E.C. Benedict, who lived in Greenwich and famously owned the yacht Oneida. Commodore Benedict, a banker and yachtsman, lived in a mansion on the 80-acre peninsula on the Long Island Sound in Greenwich, known as Indian Harbor. The home, although modified, still stands today. In fact, my friends, you can go down to the pier at the end of Steamboat Road, and if you walk down to the very end of it and cast your gaze over to the, to the left or the eastern side, you can see it there. Back to the story. On land and sea, President Cleveland and Benedict enjoyed playing cribbage. Cribbage, a card game in which two or more players accumulate points in several rounds, tracked on the distinctive pegboards, was a popular game of the period. This well-used rough-hewn board, showed above, and there's a picture of this on the website page, was carved by the President during one of their cruises on Long Island Sound. And the story says, if you want to know more about cribbage, you can find a modern version of the rules here. There's a link uh, right above uh, a, a picture of uh, Commodore Benedict at the wheel of, um, of his ship Oneida. The Oneida was a part of an important event in the former president's life. Shortly after President Cleveland was elected for a second term, he noticed a bump on the roof of his mouth. During the 4th of July weekend of 1893, the president had a secret surgery aboard E.C. Benedict's yacht to remove the reportedly cancerous lump. 
The country was entering an economic depression, and he feared that news of his poor health would further impact the economy. Cleveland claimed to be taking a fishing trip with his good friend, Commodore Benedict, but rumors spread. President Cleveland never publicly admitted to the surgery, even after he left office. And there's a couple of pictures here. One of them is of the 201-foot yacht Oneida. It is dated uh, 1904, and that is from the photography collection of the Greenwich Historical Society. And below that is a wonderful black-and-white picture of Indian Harbor, the estate of, um, of uh, Mr. Benedict. It was built in 1895 for Elias and Sarah Benedict and was featured among quote-unquote, Greenwich's Great Estates, a book published in 1986 by the Greenwich Junior League. Um, the home was significantly dismantled and altered in 1938. This piece was by Anna Greco, who is a member of the staff of the Greenwich Historical Society. So again, I call your attention to this wonderful section of the Greenwich Historical Society's website called History from Home. By the way, it says here on the uh, on the cover page, if you would like to uh, contribute to our online resource or have a suggestion for a specific topic of interest, email dnicklaus, and that would be diananicklaus at greenwichhistory.org. You can also call 203-869-6899. <music> Greenwich life as it is and was. I have a story that I would like to share with you today that was written by Lucian Edwards and it was published a hundred years ago in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, March 2nd, 1923. The title of this is The Old Round Hill Store, How Mr. Converse Saved Greenwich from a Water Famine. And by a water famine, I think that would be called today a drought. Hmm. Anyway, the story goes as follows. Not many persons living in Greenwich, if one could ask any of them, could tell anything about Odelknapp's store. Forty years ago, however, it was one of the most important business places in the town of Greenwich. Mr. Knapp was the father of town treasurer N.A. Knapp, and his store was located near the hemispherical mound, a natural beauty of Greenwich of more than local reputation, from which that section of the town, Round Hill, derides its name. It was bought some years ago by Stuart Todd, a wealthy New York man who acquired a large number of valuable farmlands located in the northern part of the town by purchase. For years, the Round Hill General Store had a large trade from the surrounding section. A considerable number of the residents of the nearby Westchester County section being regular customers, and Mr. Knapp was said to have made a comfortable fortune in the business. Farmers didn't receive 70 cents and a dollar a dozen for fresh eggs in those days. They were glad to get 29 cents a dozen in trade, and those living in the vicinity of the Round Hill store disposed of their eggs in that way at the Round Hill store. Mr. Knapp shipping them away when he had a large quantity on hand, as the local demand for eggs was very small. N.A. Knapp succeeded his father in the business and continued it a number of years. But conditions changed in Round Hill because so many of the farms changed ownership, and the business at the store changed also as a natural consequence. And N.A. Knapp sold the business to William Strain, who has continued it ever since. 
And by the way, the Strain family still uh, maintains the ownership um, and the running of the Round Hill store uh, today. And we're talking about 100 years. That's quite a long time um, in, um, in the 20th and early 21st centuries. How about that? At the time Oldenap was conducting the business there was a number of the most prominent men of the town owning farms in Round Hill. And in general, their Round Hill farms were in the highest state of cultivation of any the many finest farms located in the town of Greenwich. They were so well cared for that a stranger riding over the hills and looking at the Round Hill farms remarked, quote, those farms remind me of English farms. They look so productive, unquote. John Fred Close, who had served as judge of propate, Nehemiah H. Houston, for a number of terms town treasurer, Hiram June, also town treasurer, and a Knapp selectman, and also town treasurer and a number of other Round Hill men, had been elected to important town offices. Among the farmers of Round Hill, was Honest John Party. He was a veteran of the Civil War, being a member of Company I, the Farmers Greenwich Company of the 10th Connecticut Volunteers. Quote-unquote John, as everybody called him, combined the business of shoe repairing with farming, and to his little shop most of the Round Hill farmers went when they wanted shoes repaired. He was a quote-unquote six-footer, big in every way, and jolly, and had a stentorian voice that could be heard a block away. Everybody liked John, and whenever he came to the village, which was not often, he always received a hearty greeting. Members of the wealthy Bellhaven colony were looking for large tracts of farmland in Greenwich. They wanted larger landed possessions in the town, and while at one time the shore section was that most sought for, there was a change gradually noticed, and the back country was attracting attention. Mrs. DeFreitas had a fine dairy farm in Round Hill, which she had managed for several years, which was purchased by Dr. L.P. Jones, and he opened a dairy in the village for the sale of the products of their farm, calling it the Round Hill Farm Dairy. Charles A. Moore, one of the prominent Bellhaven residents, purchased the farm, spent considerable money in improvements, and made Round Hill his summer residence afterwards. He was the first of the Bellhaven colony to go from that section to a farming part of the town for a summer home. Dr. Jones then sold the Round Hill Farm Dairy to Tuttle Brothers, and it has been conducted by them under the name of the Round Hill Farm Dairy ever since. Coulter Hoyler, Archie Brown, Roger M. Baldwin, Thomas F. Cole, Irvin M. Day, and others bought farms for their suburban estates located in the Round Hill section. And of the farmers who were living in Round Hill when Old Nepp was quote-unquote running the Round Hill store, there are very few living there now. E.C. Converse was another of the Bellhaven residents who secured farms in the hill section of the town. He purchased through William J. Smith and others some 1,500 acres, most of it is located in Banksville, some of it adjoining Round Hill, and some in Stanwich. Mr. Converse, though wealthy, his possession amounting to many millions of dollars in value, was very democratic, hospitable, and approachable, which cannot be said of all very wealthy men. 
The property of the country club is largely due to his influence, advice, and financial aid. Mr. Converse immediately proceeded to develop his farmland. He engaged a young college-trained agriculturalist, George A. Drew, and placed him in charge, and under his management has been developed probably the largest and finest fruit, vegetable, and general farm in the country. And more produce of greater value is raised there each year than was grown in all of Banksville any year previously. The peach crop is valued at between $30,000 and $40,000 a year. Apples, the finest in the market, bring more money. And from swampland that was cleared, hay valued at $30,000 is produced. A ton of asparagus a day is sent to the market in the season. Pears, plums, strawberries are grown in large quantities. The Conyers Manor Farm, as it is called, has more than local reputation, and tourists through Greenwich often go up that way to look at those splendid cultivated acres. There is a large reservoir on the farm. It was built by William J. Smith, who wanted the Greenwich Water Company to purchase it. This the company refused to do, and he sold it to Mr. Converse, it is said, for $250,000. A few winters after it was built, the water was very low in the reservoir of the Greenwich Water Company and what was in the lakes was frozen solid, and the water famine was threatened. And again, as I said at the beginning of this segment, water famine would refer today what we call a drought. The company certainly were in dire straits, and the community was worried. Mr. Converse came to the rescue. His reservoir was full of water, and he immediately said to the, peop to the Greenwich people, quote, you can have water from my reservoir, unquote. So hose was laid from his reservoir to that of the Greenwich Water Company and water pumped into it. The water famine was averted and Mr. Converse would never take any pay for this great act of kindness. Well, my friends, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show which we dedicate to the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. We have two stories, and both of these date from 100 years ago, um, and they were published uh, in the local press on March 2nd, 1923. The first one is this. Anthony Cucuruto was arrested by policeman Robert Fitzroy last Saturday afternoon for violating a borough ordinance relative to having ashes, refuse, etc. on garbage wagons properly covered. Cucuruto pleaded guilty to the charge and Prosecutor White explained that this was the first arrest to be made under this ordinance, passed on October 1st, 1922. It was drawn up by Prosecutor White, the Borough Council, at the request of the Warden and the Board of Burgesses. And of course, this would be the Borough of Greenwich, which, by the way, no longer exists. Back to the story. After it had been found that a number of men who cart garbage were driving about the street with refuse exposed and persons were liable to have ashes blown in their faces from these wagons, particularly on a windy day. Last Saturday afternoon, there was a slight breeze, and Officer Fitzroy detected the ashes blowing about the street from Kokoruto's truck, and there was no tailboard on his wagon. He was operating the truck for another person. 
Judge James R. Meade contended that while in his opinion it was the owner of the truck who sent Kukuruto out on the truck, it was the one who should suffer. He imposed a fine of $2 in costs upon the defendant. Kukuruto had a cover for his truck as well as a tailboard, but had neglected to use it. <clears throat> the second crime story uh, also dates from around the same time, a hundred years ago. Antonio Tuzer, that's spelled T-U-Z-E-R, I hope I pronounced that properly, who told Judge James R. Meade in the borough court Monday morning that he was the proud father of nine children living at Halloween Boulevard, Stamford, bought a ticket for New York and Stamford last Saturday afternoon and boarded a westbound train. It was about 6 p.m. when the Greenwich police were notified that there was a man at the local railroad station under the influence of liquor who was in danger of being killed by passing trains. Policeman Cornelius was sent to the station and there found Tuzer, who had either been put off the train or alighted of his own volition. Tuzer is employed in New Jersey and earns $24 a week. Judge Meade's suspended sentence provided Tozer would get out of town and advised him to refrain from such sprees in the future and to better take care of his family. This he promised to do. Well, my friends at the Greenwich Historical Society have some great news. A new exhibit is on its way, and it's one that you really need to come and see. Sports More Than Just a Game will open on March 8th, 2023, and it will close on September 3rd, 2023. It's a dynamic exhibition of the local history of sporting culture, fandom, and celebrity that explores how Greenwich, Connecticut, and its surrounding communities broke boundaries, tested their limits, and found common ground through athletic achievement. Again, this is sports more than just a game. That's the next terrific exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society, and you've really got to come and see it. Now, to learn more about this, please go to GreenwichHistory.org, or you could also call for more information at area code 203-869-6899. The First Congregational Church of Old Greenwich invites you to enjoy two free self-guided online history tours. These are really fantastic. The church was founded in 1665, incidentally, by my ancestors, among others. One tour is of the church cemetery, the one that is located off of Sound Beach Avenue. The other is a tour of the wonderful stained glass windows of the church located in Old Greenwich. You know, they tell quite a story about the influences that culminated in driving some people from Europe to America, and in the chapel they tell the story of the landing of the settlers here in the year 1640 and the development of the first church in Greenwich, Connecticut. You can learn more by going to the First Congregational Church's website, which is fccog.org. When you see the menu at the top, go to About Us and then look under the items under Our History, and you will see our self-guided audio tours 
And um, you can look at those from your smartphone, from your laptop, whatever the case may be. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, today is the last day of African American or Black History Month. I'd like to share with you an article that was published in the Greenwich Time on August 20th, 1995. I was its author. And it is about one of Greenwich's first Black or African American families, the Felmetta family. Um, and that is spelled F E L M. E-T-T-E. And by the way, there are descendants of this family still living with us today, of course. So um, this is this is for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm, with the, um, I'm with the article. The title of it is A Look at One of Greenwich's First Black Families. Have you heard of the Felmetta family of Greenwich? This is one of the earliest black families in the town of Greenwich, dating back to the late 1700s. Their names are found uh, in a number of the town's a census and church registers. Variations of the spelling include Felmete, which is, as I spelled before, F-E-L-M-E-T-T-E, Felmote, F-E-L-M-O-T-E, Felmete, which is F-E-L-M-E-T-T-Y, and Felmeta, F-E-L-M-E-T-T-A. There you go. On October 30th, 1786, Halsey Mead sold to Jeffrey Filmetti for, quote, 50-pound New York money, one certain tractor parcel lying and being in said Greenwich, whereof, in the West Society, thereof containing about one-half an acre of land, with the house and two shops therein standing or adjoining, by the road that leads from Horseneck to King Street, it being the place I now dwell, quote-unquote. The road probably, by the way, is would be Glenville Road today. James Mead, executor of the Isaac Holmes Jr. estate, sold Felmette five acres for 22 pounds and 15 shillings, quote, above the post road and below the mile and half line bounded by highway that goes up by Zacchaeus Meads, unquote. This highway, quote, unquote, is, uh, we, we believe, is today's Lake Avenue. In 1821, George Felmette purchased four acres with buildings from Isaac Peck III for $350. Jabez M. Hobby Jr. sold to a woman named Tamer, T-A-M-E-R, Felmette, a half acre of land with a building on uh, June 10, 1882. It was bound on three sides by road and the land of Jeffrey Felmette and the land of the heirs of Drake Seymour. York Felmette joined the Second Congregational Church on November 24, 1790. He was baptized as an adult by Reverend Isaac Lewis on the same date two years later. Kate Filmetti, wife of Edward Filmetti, joined the church and was baptized on May 20, 1810. James Filmetti was baptized by profession, quote-unquote, on July 7, 1850, by the Reverend Joel Lindsley. Town records show George H. Filmetti drowned in Greenwich on June 26, 1864. In 1863, Washington P. Filmetti, 22-year-old farm laborer, married Esther M. Todd, 17, of New York City on March 20, 1863, by the Reverend Yarrington at Christ Episcopal Church, that would be Christ Church, Greenwich today. A mason named Robert Filmetti and his wife Margaret became the parents of a daughter, Malvina, on May 30th, 1862. 
The Second Congregational Church records, records rather, the admission of Nancy Filmetta, wife of George Peck, on September 4th, 1831. An infant named Anne Genrette Filmetti was admitted to on May 2nd, 1858. A family burial plot in Union Cemetery was purchased on Christmas Day, 1851, by the heirs of James Filmette for $9.18. Eliza, wife of James Filmette, died July 8, 1855, and her epitaph on her marble gravestone reads, Dearest mother, thou hast left us, here thy loss we deeply feel, but tis God that has bereft us, he can all our sorrows heal. Yet again we hope to meet thee, when the day of life is fled, thou in heaven with joy to greet thee, where no farewell tear is shed. Well, for decades, automobile or car shows uh, have been held in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, showcasing some of the most wonderful designs of uh, automobile construction that you could possibly imagine. They're always very interesting to uh, to go to. I wanted to share with you news of the first of these being announced, and that happened on Friday, March 2nd, 1923, in the Greenwich News and Graphic, and the story goes as follows. The uh, headline reads, Automobile, Automobile Show in Greenwich, Local and Out-of-Town Dealers to Make Fine Exhibit. Greenwich is to have its first automobile show at the State Armory on March 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, which will be similar in many respects to the shows conducted in Yonkers and White Plains recently. Callahan and Parkland are in charge of the arrangements. Not only will local and Porchester automobile dealers have exhibits in the show, but there will be a number of nationally known automobile, automobile manufacturers who will display one or more models. Already, plans for decorating the drill shed, advertising, and arrangements for floor space are well underway. It is understood that practically every automobile dealer in town will have floor space reserved. There also will be accessories and possible, possibly coachwork and sports jobs on exhibition. Greenwich is reputed to have more automobiles than any other town or city of its, of its size in the country. Why doesn't that surprise me? And the town can certainly boast of a goodly number of the finest and most expensive cars made, owned by prominent residents of the community. Hundreds of automobile owners are much interested in the coming show, and from present indications, it will attract not only many residents of the town, but hundreds of people from nearby towns and cities. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, needless to say, my friends, it has been a very, very mild winter in Greenwich and uh, must have, most of the East Coast area of, um, of the United States and, and even other parts of, um, of the nation. 
Um, so it's hard to imagine going back in time and, and visualizing this, or maybe it, it, you can visualize this, I don't know. But anyway, this is a story that appeared in the March 2nd, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic, and it was about dynamiting ice in the harbor. Many explosions break up ice so coal barges can come in, and the story goes as follows. The thickness and average of the ice in Greenwich Harbor, which barred out the shipping, made it necessary this week for Mar Brothers Corporation to resort to dynamiting. Could you imagine going down <laughs> to Greenwich Harbor and seeing dynamite being uh, set off in order to, uh, to break up the ice? I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's happened in anyone's lifetime, but you know that must have been a very interesting sight indeed. Anyway, back to the story. Bobley, who is connected with the concern, engineered the job, and with the assistance of some men in the employ of the Peter Mitchell Contracting Company, brought about good results as a considerable quantity of coal in two barges for the Mar Brothers Corporation, which was just outside the harbor, was later towed into the harbor to the docks of the local coal concern. The ice was frozen solidly nearly to Great Captain's Island, and it took a great number of blasts before the ice was broken enough to make way for the barges. The saw also played a prominent role, part rather, in some places. The work was begun on Monday morning, and by Tuesday forenoon the barges were able to enter the harbor. Mr. Lee says that he noticed a peculiar feature. While the blasting of the ice was in progress, was that no fish aside from one small killifish was brought to the surface. As a rule, when ice is dynamited in this manner, it kills the fish and they rise to the surface. This gives rise to the fact that possibly there are not many fish in local waters at this time. At the Sterling G. Winnipeg boat building concern on the steamboat road, a channel was also made for sawing and chopping the ice um, let's see, 50 or 75 feet distant, which enabled the boats to go in and out of the harbor. And that, my friends, came from the March 2nd, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. My friends, I want you to step back and close your eyes and think for a moment what it would have been like being here in Greenwich, Connecticut and opening your edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic dated Friday, February 23rd, 1923. And turning through the various pages, seeing the news that is um, on, and coming to the 13th page, there is a gigantically important announcement in the annals of, um, of history and archaeology that really changed the, the direction of the world, quite frankly. And we're talking about the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamen of, um, of Egypt. Um, it was in that edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic that uh, the people of Greenwich found out about this remarkable discovery. And I'd like to, uh, to read this to you. The, uh, the headline of the article is Resurrecting Pharaoh, Riches of Outer Chambers of Tomb Worth Hmm, $15 million. And by the way, that would be in $15 million in 1923 money. Uh, I wonder what that would be worth uh, today. Who knows? If you, if you know, let me know. I'd be very interested. The discoveries in the tomb of King Tutankhamen announced Sunday, one of the concluding phases of the not notable archaeological achievements of Lord Carnarvon, 
and his associates. I want to stop here and tell you that that name might be a little bit familiar to you if you have been a steady or enthusiastic uh, viewer of the Downton Abbey series uh, that was on um, uh, Masterpiece Theatre years ago. You might know that the real name of Downton Abbey, the name of the uh, of the castle there, is Highclear High Castle, and it was owned by Lord Carnarvon. And he is the one who financed the, um, uh, the, the effort to discover the, uh, the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Rather interesting. Anyway, back to the story. It was in November last that the party first made their announcement of exceptional finds after years of exploration on the site of ancient Thebes near Luxor. The, exca the excavations have been going on steadily since the first announcement, with frequent unearthing of articles of great historic value as the work pushed forward steadily toward the inner tomb whose treasures were finally disclosed within the last few days. In the outer chamber of the tomb, two life-size statues of King Tutankhamun were found. In accordance with the Egyptian ritual, against the doorway to the inner or mortuary chamber, as though on guard. The faces, evidently made from plaster casts, showed the king as a man of royal man. The feet were shod with solid gold sandals, and each statue was crowned with a golden it says diadem. I don't know what that is. Oh, well. Four chariots, a throne of wonderful workmanship, on the back of which was a portrait of the pharaoh and his bride, worked in gold and glass, and three ceremonial couches of great beauty were among the other striking objects brought from the tomb. Among the other innumerable articles disclosed was a magnificent inlaid box, containing the queen's robes and jewelry, including amber necklaces of great value, also rich alabaster vases, believed to contain balm for the dead, linen garments of fragile weave which had resisted the encroachments of time, ebony footstools, croziers used in the ancient rites, and even perfumes which still retained their scent. There was also a large funeral bouquet in an excellent state of preservation. While the place bore evidence of having been visited by the ancient tomb robbers, many articles of gold set with precious stones remained, and the value of the contents of the outer chamber has been placed roughly at more than $15 million. But the value of the discoveries from an archaeological standpoint is literally above estimate, as throwing light upon the history of the ancients. After, after the removal of the various articles from the two outer chambers, work requiring the utmost care and expert supervision, preparations were made to pierce the masonry door of the mortuary chamber, and this was first opened on Friday last. The object of greatest interest to the scientists was the sarcophagus of the pharaoh, but once it was established that this remained, they turned their attention to the other articles disclosed, the splendors of which surpassed even those of the outer chambers. The center or mortuary chamber was occupied by an immense, richly inscribed and gilded canopy, enclosing the sarcophagus, and beyond 
was another chamber filled with treasures, including a number of gilded chariots, a quantity of exquisite furniture, and many beautiful alabaster vases and other ornamental objects. It was announced soon after the original discoveries were made that in case the body of the king was found, it was to be x-rayed before the bandages were removed, as it was expected this would throw light on the ritual of embalming as practiced by the ancient Egyptians. I have to admit, if I could stop here before we conclude, is that this is one of the earliest uh, references that I've ever read of the use of uh, x-ray technology. And again, this is, this is 1923. Anyway, back to the, um, to the conclusion of the story. It was said also that when the alabaster coffin was opened, the shrouded form would be taken into the sunlight and photographed from every angle. The hundreds of yards of bandage unwound from the body and for the first time in history, a film of the weird sight made. And that, my friends, is dated from February 23rd, 1923. This was in the Greenwich News and Graphic. Imagine yourself, as I said before, again, living in Greenwich 100 years ago, opening up your newspaper and discovering one of the greatest archaeological finds in modern history laid before you. It must have been quite something uh, to, uh, to be there for that. Well, in the February 26, 1881 edition of the Greenwich Observer, which happened to have been Greenwich's first uh, homegrown newspaper, if you will, there was a piece that was published about the village of Round Hill. It's in the form of a letter to the editor of the Greenwich Observer, and I'd like to share this with you. Mr. Editor, as you published in your last issue some notes of rural neighborhoods and their people, I thought that perhaps a brief description of this village might not be unacceptable. What is called Round Hill is about two and a half miles in length by as many in width. In North Round Hill, the people are all farmers, among them being our selectman, N.H. Houston. The schoolhouse and Methodist Episcopal Church are in the center. At this junction appears what is known as John Street, so-called because there are nearly all Johns who live there. On the left-hand side of said street is the noted hill, the top of which is a thousand feet above the level of Long Island Sound. At the Methodist Episcopal Church, Main Street begins, and I cut in here to say that would be probably Round Hill Road, along which we find some farmers and milk and water men. Coming down as far as, quote, Pine Tree John's, unquote, Cherry Street begins. I cut in here again because I'm assuming that the Cherry Street begins refers to uh, Cherry Valley Road. I'm not sure, but I infer that, and, you know, we'll have to research that further. Passing along a few rods, we come to the residences of S.D. and Jabez Houston, the owners of which are masters of a variety of trades. Edwin Knapp, the miller, also lives on this street. Leaving Cherry, we come back again to Main Street, where we find Ward Sarles, the great milk and water man, and next to him, the aged chairman of the L.M. Society, who enjoys the enviable distinction of being the only living man who ever sailed a sloop from New York City to Lake Erie. Calvary Church is next in order. Long John lives nearly opposite. He is a boot and shoemaker by trade, but has paid more attention to making cider for the last four months. Here our beautiful village begins. Hiram June comes next. He is a man of much note, 
has been town tax collector at intervals for the past 12 years, school district collector for the same period, and has held other offices of trust about town. A better neighbor in every respect does not live between the poles. Our village butcher must not be forgotten. He is a man after our own heart, ready to feed the naked and clothe the hungry. Next to him is J.F. Close, our town treasurer, who is the owner of four farms all situated in Round Hill. Dr. White's mansion is opposite, and its owner is known for miles around in his practice. Next, come, next comes Colonel T.A. Haight, who so bravely fought the Battle of Hangroot and was appointed to the Cullency in the state militia. That would be the Cullency. I've never seen the word said that before. What are you going to do? He is our village blacksmith. O.C. Knapp lives on the corner of Main Street and Sawmill Avenue. He keeps in his store everything that can be thought of except tin grindstones and duck yokes. <laughs> and by the way, I think what we're referring to here is the Round Hill store, and the Main Street would be Round Hill Road, and Sawmill Avenue, I think, would probably be today's Old Mill Road. Back to the story. He has also two clerks whose superiors, in our opinion, cannot be found. Going down, we reach Isaac Knapp's The Great Aldrency Buttermaker, Alexander Ferris is at the extremity of Main Street. He teams it, working for Tom, Dick, and Harry, or whoever will furnish the collateral. But we must not forget Farrington Avenue. George Miller, president of the First National Bank, has just finished a mansion. He just got a cage and then put a bird in it. Next comes the Farrington House, where board may be had at reasonable rates and dressmaking done in the most fashionable styles. In the opposite direction lies Sawmill Avenue. The first house is Eugene Tompkins's. Next, E. Reddington's, John Hackett's, and others. This avenue leads to what is called North Porchuk. The residents of this hamlet are chiefly day laborers, although they have a mayor, John Burnett, who attends to the needy. I have thus, Mr. Editor, given you a succinct unaccount of this place as I can, and believe that those of your readers who have ever visited our village will recognize its accuracy. And I close by saying that uh, the letter to the editor is unsigned, uh, but this definitely is about what we know today as modern Round Hill. You know, there was a time when Americans of all stripes were really not able to travel very far or very often. It's something that really we take for granted today. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm not only a frequent traveler, but I'm even doing uh, today's podcast from my home in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, there was a, 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 a story that um, is dated from February 28th, 1908 that I found. <clears throat> and the title of this is Willie Home Again. It's about a local resident by the name of Willie Duran, who uh, was out on quite a bit of traveling. And again, this is back in 1908 when tourism and traveling was quite new and novel to um, not just the people of, um, of America, but to the people of Greenwich as well. And the story goes as follows. He was back from a trip through Texas, Florida, and other states. Willie Duran, with an elegant coat of tan on face and hands and an additional 20 pounds over and above what he had when he went away, returned Monday from a three-month trip to the south. 
the gems of the Atlantic seaboard he had visited as well as those of the Gulf, and he says that he had the time of his life, but he joins fervently in the chorus of that good old song, <clears throat> quote, I love this, be it ever so humble, there's no place like Greenwich, Connecticut, unquote. <clears throat> Seriously, that's in the article, <laughs> right? <laughs> you heard it here first. From the time he stepped off the train until he went to bed, he was kept busy by a crowd of welcoming friends answering questions. They kept him going until he had told the histories of the states of Texas, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida from 112 B.C. to the present time. <clears throat> and he had quoted the New Orleans market price of every staple article. <laughs> they required a chronicle of every day's events from the time he started till he returned and demanded a minute description of the scenery, the business prosperity, and the price of eatables in every town he had been in. Mr. Duran made a valiant attempt to please his friends, and when memory failed him, filled in from imagination in any old way he could. <laughs> among, other, among, <coughs> among other places Mr. Duran has visited, include Houston, Galveston, Texas, Tampa and Key West, Florida, and Charleston, South Carolina. Houston he describes as a most enterprising and hustling place. The principal real estate dealer there, he says, in Enterprise, would be a model even for Greenwich real estate men. Among the signs, uh, other signs, a mammoth one decorates his building, bearing the legend, quote, too high for tidal waves, too low for cyclones. Houston is the place to live, unquote. In all the southern cities, he says, business depression is being felt as keenly as it is in the north. There have been but a million bales of cotton shipped out of Galveston so far this year, as against three millions in an equal time last year. He visited Key West for the first time on this trip, and he says that it was a great disappointment to him. Hmm. Work has been suspended on Flagler's famous Key West Railroad, and he says it looks as if it would never be finished. Tempe, he says, is an ideal place for the winter months. That would be Tampa, Florida, of course. Much of this time has been spending cruising about in the Gulf and off the coast of Florida. He says that altogether the trip was most enjoyable, but that he is now satisfied to stay in Greenwich for the rest of his natural life. Well, mahalo nui loa, which means thank you very much in Hawaiian language, my friends, for tuning in to the Tuesday, 28th of February, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Bede. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities, the special place that we call home. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by 
Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, whether I'm in Greenwich, Honolulu, or anywhere else in the world, you know, you have you have every opportunity uh, to, um, to contact me, and you can do so. The best way to do that is by emailing me at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Now, you can learn more about the show, listen to past shows by going to GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. My next show is scheduled for next Tuesday. That would be the 7th of March, 2023. By the way, that is going to be my final day here, at least on this trip anyway, in Honolulu. I'll be um, flying nonstop, courtesy of Hawaiian Airlines, uh, back to uh, to Greenwich through uh, New York City. And, uh, well, to be honest with you, I'm kind of looking forward to heading back home, but rest assured, uh, I'll be back out here in Hawaii real soon, and um, maybe you'll even want to come with me. How about that? You know, I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. Uh, and uh, I assure you, I will be back again <laughs> real soon, and I look forward to being you back, being with you back again um, in a home and a town that I hold near and dear, and that would, of course, be Greenwich, Connecticut. Aloha, everybody. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye now. Thank you.